Hi, it's Dwyer, DwyerCrime.blog. Let's do part two of um, my take on two shallow graves, right? Understand it's my position that there just isn't enough, there shouldn't have been enough to convict Charles Merritt of murder. And keep in mind, too, we're talking about four murders. The prosecution really has no idea where the murders took place, how they were carried out, right? That has not been explained. Obviously, my daughter wants to be <laughs> in the video. We'll let her slide, okay? But um, just understand, many things are unexplained here. Where did the murders take place? How did Charles Merritt, without a gun, with supposedly a sledgehammer, which no one can link to him, kill two adults? Are they alive or dead when they leave the house? We simply don't know. Well, let's pick it up here. Um, let me fill a gap. In the first video, I pointed out that the prosecution had no evidence that would place Charles Merritt's truck at the murder scene. Folks, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Understand that the prosecution actually presented an expert witness who looked at the incomplete surveillance tape. In other words, there's a tape of just the bottom of what looks like a truck leaving the house. Now, on the show, Two Shallow Graves, they actually point out that many of the people in the social circle of the McStays drove similar vehicles, right? They actually point that out on the show. Well, here they had an expert, a young guy, who curiously, in a California case, was based in Canada. In other words, they had to search for this guy. They couldn't find an expert in California to testify about what this expert was going to testify about. And this expert made the claim that he couldn't exclude Chase Merritt's vehicle. Not that he could tell whether it was Chase Merritt's vehicle in the surveillance film, right? But that he couldn't exclude it. So, of course, what happened was that that evidence got undercut by guess who? The prior expert that the prosecution had consulted with, who just happens to be one of the prominent experts in the space. So, of course, that expert happened to be watching the trial on television. I'm not making this up. He then calls the defense and he says, hey, you know, understand I was hired by the prosecution. I disagree with these findings. In other words, folks, the experts consulting with the prosecution were not in agreement on whether the image in the surveillance film could have been Chase Merritt's truck. Think about that. Right, understand, if the truck in the prosecution's video can't be Chase Merritt's truck, then you have 
absolutely no evidence that Chase Merritt's truck was there that day. None. Right? So, of course, the defense calls the prosecution witness, right? The original prosecution consultant. And he basically says, look, Chase's truck is too long. It couldn't be the truck in the video. Now, let me make a basic point here. Folks, this case is thin on evidence as it is. If you're a juror and you find out that the prosecution's own experts can't agree, then how could you as a jury reach agreement? Are you supposed to defer to the experts? Isn't the prosecution cherry-picking the opinions they hear and trying to gloss over the opinions they have received from their experts that don't fit into their narrative? Right, so folks, just recognize too, I believe this case gets overturned on appeal because at one point, Dr. Rudin, when he was working for the prosecution, sent the prosecution a text message, which pointed out that it was, here's his word, impossible, impossible for the truck to be, Chase Merritt's truck, impossible. And believe it or not, the prosecution did not turn that over to the defense. Now, they gloss over it in the show, right? They, you know, go out of their way in the show to have the prosecutor say, well, we disclosed Dr. Rudin's identity. Their legal burden is greater than that, in my opinion. They are to disclose any exculpatory evidence to the defense. Our criminal justice system is built in a way where if the prosecution realizes that they're prosecuting the wrong person, they're supposed to turn over that information to the defendant. Now here, the prosecution's own expert said it's impossible that the truck on the surveillance tape, and folks, that's the only possible vehicle that the prosecution knows of that could have taken the McStays away from the house. Right here, the expert tells the prosecution it's impossible that this was the defendant's vehicle. And incredibly, the prosecution did not turn over that text to the defense. Right, folks, in my opinion, that's prosecutorial misconduct. Now, let's get back to the subject I was discussing when the first video cut off. The question needs to be asked, right? Joseph McStay and his family brutally murdered. Did Joseph have enemies? Now, what I want to point out is that there's an open question on whether the way Joseph McStay did business was, let's say, the kind of thing that would aggravate the people he was doing business with. Just understand that Dan Kavanaugh, 
who's missing for the trial, appears on the Two Shallow Graves show. Now, Kavanaugh considers himself to be a 50% owner of McStay's business. I know they keep referring to him as the guy responsible for the webpage. Understand, the business had customers who learned of the business from other states through the website. Understand, too, Kavanaugh had so much power that he tells you on the show. When he sits down and he speaks with the producers, right, he tells them that he's the one who fired Chase Merritt after Joseph McStay goes missing. Now, just to understand, Kavanaugh, and I'm not accusing Kavanaugh of doing the murders, but Kavanaugh talks about how he had a 50-50 agreement with Joseph McStay. McStay was supposed to tell him about every project that the business had, right? McStay did not do that. McStay hid projects from him. So the two guys had a big-time argument that's reflected in messages between the two of them that appear on the show, right? Where, you know, the two guys throw accusations and stuff like that at each other. Now, Kavanaugh on the show tells you that McStay later backs down. McStay knew he was in the wrong. McStay knew he should have disclosed to his business partner the full extent of the business. But yet, on the show, Kavanaugh concedes that after McStay promised to make him whole, to pay him his share of the previously undisclosed projects, right, Kavanaugh admits that it was his plan privately that once he received full payment, he was going to cut the cord. He was going to leave the business. He did not want to continue doing business with Joseph McStay. Now understand, if Joseph McStay is a guy who has sharp elbows, right, has people he's done business with, feeling the way Dan Kavanaugh felt, then that widens the pool of possible suspects. Right? Understand, it's not like Chase Merritt is the only person in Joseph McStay's orbit who may have had mixed emotions toward him. We know Dan Kavanaugh did. Let's go one step further. McStay was divorced. His wife married a fellow named Michael McFadden. On the show, they point out that McFadden had a criminal record for domestic violence that included threatening to kill a woman in the late 1990s. Well, understand, he actually at one point threatens to hurt McStay and Summer. Right? Just, just recognize that we just don't have a full picture of all of the people around Joseph McStay who may have been upset with him. Also, the victimology is all wrong. Why are we just focused on Joseph McStay? Understand, he's just one of two adults 
who were killed brutally with a sledgehammer. Think about his wife, Summer, for a moment. Right now, just understand, we all know Summer had a temper. We know that because, of course, we're hearing about it from people like the painter who was at the house on February the 2nd. Right? We know about it from McFadden's comments to Joseph that we hear about from Joseph's father, Patrick, where McFadden basically says, hey, if you don't get your wife to shut up, I'm going to hurt the two of you. Well, just understand, she's a real estate agent. Now, California real estate, even back in 2010, was very expensive. A mistake by a real estate agent could cost a buyer or a seller, literally, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Folks, that area is not even explored on the show. Right? Understand, we're here focused on Joseph McStay and we're hearing about Chase Merritt's relationship with his business. What about his wife? Isn't she also killed? What about the people who may have an axe to grind with her? On the show, they actually discuss one such person, her former husband, Vic Johannesson. Right now, Vic happened to be living nearby. Vic, of course, had had the police called on him for aggressive behavior toward people in a bar. Right, Vic, of course, two months before the McStays go missing, writes a love email to his ex-wife, Summer. Right, folks, what you need to do is to realize that Chase Merritt is just one person in a situation with many people. Right? The prosecution has a narrative that seems to exclude a lot of people, that seems to draw attention away from Joseph McStay's method of doing business. Right? Think of the victimology here. Is Chase Merritt, and again, they don't have his vehicle at the scene, is Chase Merritt the only possible person who might have been angered enough by the McStays to try to hurt them. Right? Folks, I think it's an open question. If I'm going to convict someone of first-degree murder, let's just say these questions would have to be removed from my thinking if I'm going to find proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Let's talk about the ping from the phone that happens near Victorville, where Chase Merritt's sister lives. Now, let's point out the obvious. These pings are so unreliable, especially out in the high desert, that the defense had a witness, excuse me, an expert witness on phone pings in the courtroom prepared to testify. Right? Just understand, the expert disclosed 
in the courtroom, all the defense has to do is to call him and have him up on the stand. Now, this is a major part of the prosecution's case because this phone ping, as I see it, is the only piece of evidence that places Chase Merritt in the area, not even at the gravesite, but in the area of the gravesite. Think about the wide radius. It's high desert. Think about the wide radius for that phone tower. The prosecution's so desperate, they want to argue that, hey, a phone ping on that tower that has a multi-mile radius means that Chase Merritt was necessarily at the grave. Right? They, they can't put a shovel in his hands. No one sees him with a shovel that day. They don't have forensics. They don't have his DNA. Right? It's four people he's supposed to have buried. They don't have a single witness. Right? It's relatively flat land. You know, there's a phone tower on a hill. Then you notice it's a flat field. The kind where someone can look and there is nothing obstructing the view of the person looking across the field, right, where the bodies are buried. But yet the prosecution has no weaknesses. None. So understand, the defense has an expert witness who's going to argue that the ping isn't reliable because it could have come from anywhere around the tower, including where Chase Merritt's sister lives. Now, it's malpractice, folks, in my opinion, for the defense not to have called that expert. That's a self-inflicted wound caused by Chase Merritt's own attorneys. Right? It's inexplicable why you wouldn't call the cell phone tower person. You want the jury, after hearing about this ping from the prosecution, to get some form of opposition, right? Some form of, hey, this ping doesn't mean what they claim. The defense doesn't produce him. But even without him being produced, just understand what happened. Understand what the jury heard. The defense, excuse me, the prosecution calls Chase Merritt's sister to the stand. Chase Merritt's sister points out that Chase would visit her from time to time. Now, on the show, they try to make an argument that Chase Merritt's sister told the police investigator something different years earlier. Right? But understand. Then someone stuck a tape recorder in her face. Now she's in court under oath. Folks, it makes a difference. She also argues that then she was fresh out of the hospital. Wasn't completely herself. Now she's not on that medication. Right? She's been out of the hospital. She's lucid. 
So, of course, the prosecution so concerned, they put the cop on the stand who interviewed her years ago, 10 years earlier. And the cop says, hey, you know, she told me at the time that Chase hardly visited her. Right? Well, understand, folks, her evidence is only necessary if the tower phone ping evidence isn't conclusive. The entire focus on her testimony shows you that the phone ping evidence here is inconclusive. Chase Merritt could have visited his sister, right? According to her actual testimony in court, he did visit her from time to time. And his phone would have pinged off of the phone tower. Now, on the show, of course, the prosecutor tells the interviewer, well, we think it's uh, very interesting, it's very significant that his phone pings off this tower. Right, folks, very significant is not the same as proving something beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecutor's burden is to show us that Chase Merritt was in that desert, that he's the one who buried the bodies. I think all of us also know, too, that it would be a lot of work for one guy to bury four bodies in the desert without being seen. Right, especially when we have no record, again, no record of Chase Merritt's vehicle being at the McStay's house when they disappear. Right, keep in mind too, there's the added wrinkle here of the McStay vehicle having been found in San Ysidro. Thinking that one guy, and that's the prosecution theory, did all of this is a reach, isn't it? We don't even know where all this happened. Because, of course, he goes into a house that's in the middle of a paint job, right? No one sees paint on him, by the way, right? Then he is supposed to have, with a sledgehammer, murdered four people. If you believe they got killed at the house... The prosecution doesn't know. They want you to guess. He murders four people without leaving blood anywhere. Right? No blood, blood spatter. Right, folks? This isn't even a Dexter scenario. You know, that fictional serial killer who carries around, you know, plastic to place people on. Here, Chase would have to walk in with the plastic and everyone see him. And, of course, he would then have the sledgehammer and people would watch him put down the plastic before he starts killing everyone. Right? The prosecution, again, doesn't know how it happened. They don't even have a shovel that they could contend was used by Chase to bury the four people. 
the evidence here for murder is just not there. Let me close by saying this. You really have to believe the prosecution if you're going to find this guy guilty of murder. Right? You can't think the prosecution's dodgy. That the prosecution is bending facts, making unreasonable assumptions. If you're going to find Chase Merritt guilty of murder, well, just understand in this case, the expert from Canada, think about that, testifies about a latch on Chase Merritt's vehicle and how the surveillance film shows a reflection off the latch. The prosecution then calls, excuse me, the defense, then calls the earlier prosecution expert who the prosecution fired. That guy doesn't believe at all in the latch theory. In other words, the prosecution has been presenting things to the jury that their older, more experienced, prior expert doesn't believe in at all, right? And of course, this is in a context where the prosecutor makes a mistake and does not provide the defense with an email from that more experienced prior expert that says it's impossible for the truck in the video to be Chase Merritt's truck. Right? No truck. There should have been no conviction. If the prosecution can't tell you where or how the quadruple homicide took place, there should have been no conviction. If the phone ping evidence is consistent with Chase Merritt visiting his sister and the sister under penalty of perjury appears at the trial and says, yes, Chase would visit me from time to time, there should be no conviction. Right? There just isn't enough here for a murder conviction. Folks, you have to prove it. It's not enough to show that Chase Merritt was embezzling from the company. Right? That's just not enough. You have to actually show the means for Chase Merritt to commit the murder. Right? The prosecution theory has Chase Merritt having a series of phone conversations with Joseph McStay on the day McStay goes missing. Then Merritt heads over to the house. Zero planning for a quadruple homicide that he's supposed to have committed by himself, not with a gun, where he walks in and goes bang, 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 bang and can think, if I have a gun, I can kill four people and leave. But no, with a sledgehammer. He's supposed to have been hitting people like McStay and McStay's wife 
right, in sequence. It doesn't work. Let me point out, too, the prosecution could never have a theory where the McStays leave the house and get killed elsewhere because they just don't have the evidence. Right? It's interesting, too, that they're speculating, speculating about Chase's truck. Now, we know that the McStays are brutally murdered with a sledgehammer. Right? There should be forensics all over the place. But yet we don't hear about any such forensics being found in Chase's truck. Understand, the surveillance film is supposed to show a truck leaving the McStay residence. So if you believe Merritt goes over there and kills the four people at the house... He would have four bodies with blood, head wounds, savage, you know, savagely beaten in his vehicle. And that would leave some forensics. Here, there is none. Right? None. We don't know. We simply don't know what happened. And the prosecution has the burden of proof. Think about this, too. If, in fact, the truck, and keep in mind, this is what the younger second expert for the prosecution told the jury, right? If the truck leaving the scene is Charles Merritt's truck, when exactly did the Isuzu trooper McStay's vehicle, leave the house. If you don't have the answer to questions like that, when the prosecution's theory is that a lone nut killed four people, I don't believe you have enough to find Chase Merritt guilty of murder. I don't think Chase Merritt should be on death row. Don't get me wrong. Right? He's a suspect. But in the United States of America, you have to prove that the suspect did the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. You can't convict people of first-degree murder and give them the death penalty based on a suspicion. And you certainly can't do so in a case where the prosecution's own experts don't agree on whether Merritt's truck is the one on film. That's how I see it. Let me hear from you. I hope you leave your comments in the comment section of this video. Thanks for stopping by.